Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the blatant hate and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and brutalize and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Two key topics that we talk about on Tech Dirt all the time are free speech and content moderation, and of course the interplay between those two things. Uh, one of the most thoughtful people that I know, thinking through the impact of content moderation on free um, free speech, uh, especially outside of the U.S., is Jillian York, uh, the EFF's director for international freedom of expression. Uh, she's just published an excellent new book called Silicon Values, uh, which is a, a somewhat personal exploration of free speech and the rise of giant internet companies and their content moderation practices. Uh, anyone who is thinking about these issues really should read the book. I, I recommend it very, very strongly for people who are uh, interested in this issue and talking about it and wants to understand all of the the nuances and details because it, it really presents both an incredibly useful history of the challenges and, and the evolutions of internet content moderation, but also uh, does an excellent job of exploring the pitfalls, risks, and dangers of how that impacts free speech around the globe. Uh, the book actually challenged many of my own beliefs and assumptions in a way that all good, thoughtful, nuanced books on these topics tend to do uh, and forced me to explore some of my own feelings about all this. Uh, there have been many books that touch on these subjects, and Jillian cites many of them and quotes many of their authors, uh, but this is not a book that I think is duplicative of those other books. It's a true exploration of many of the conflicting challenges in trying to support the values of free speech while simultaneously recognizing that threats to free speech come in many different forms, and even sometimes that includes uh, dealing with those who have uh, ill intent uh, and feel free to harass, abuse, threaten, and attack others. Uh, there's so much worth exploring in the book, and so I am happy to have Jillian on the podcast today to discuss it. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So uh, to start, as I mentioned, there are other books out there that touch on these subjects, but um, none quite like yours, I think. I think you made this book somewhat personal, you know, interweaving your own story into it uh, in a way that I, I think actually makes it a much more powerful story than just sort of like a typical academic exploration of these things. Um, is there a reason why you decided to present it in that way? Yeah, you know, I came to this work about oh, a little over a decade ago. Um, and at the time, there were just so few people that I knew of, um, from, you know, coming from my background who were who were writing about it and thinking about it, you know, includes like Rebecca McKinnon and Dana Boyd, Zainab Tufekci even. And I was really inspired by a lot of their work that they were doing. And a lot of them have, have obviously written great things about this. Um, but when I looked through the, the books that had been written back then and the ones more recently, um, I felt like a lot of them were exploring these topics from, you know, from a legalistic perspective or from a sociological perspective, but there wasn't really anything that tied all of those threads together. And so I, you know, I'm a very strategic thinker. I've been on EFF's activism team for a while. And I always think, okay, like, where can I bring value that no one has already? Um, but also, you know, for me, a lot of this is really a personal story. Um, I, as I write in the book, 
I got into this because of my experiences in Morocco, um, experiencing censorship at, at a real level for the first time in my life um, as an early 20 something. And then when I first became aware of what Facebook was doing and then later other companies, it was through that same network of people that I'd, I'd met in that country who were experiencing it. Um, and so I think, yeah, just tying all of those threads together is really important for me. Yeah. And it, it, it works really well. I mean, it's, it's a really like, it's an engaging book. Like, <laughs> you know, I started reading and I was like, you know, I'll, I'll read a little bit over time. And I, I had trouble putting it down. So oh, <laughs> it's, <thank you. laughs> it's really good. It's, it's really well done. Um, you, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've always appreciated about you and sort of your work, um, on this is, is you, you do such a good job of, you know, reminding people, of you know the downsides of of you know over moderation especially in the global context because so much of the conversation tends to focus just in the u.s context and you're very good at reminding people like hey there's a rest of the world out here and these things can 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 you know uh it can matter differently in different places and in different contexts. Um, do you want to talk a little bit just about that and just, just for our listeners to, to be thinking through like, you know, what were some of the things that you saw that, that really, you know, you know, maybe some of the early examples that concerned you from the beginning about the way content moderation worked, you know, especially outside the U S. Sure. Yeah. Um, I actually moved to Morocco the same year that I signed up for Facebook, uh, 2005. And it was the first year I think Facebook even became available to people outside the Ivies. Um, and so I, I graduated university a couple years before and really in the, I moved there, discovered that I was using LiveJournal to blog. And the first night that I was in the country, um, found out that LiveJournal was blocked and I couldn't access my <laughs> own blog. And I was like, okay, well, that's a thing. Um, I'd never experienced internet censorship before because I grew up in the U.S. and lived there my whole life. And, you know, we, I'm not saying there is no censorship in the U.S., but it's very, very different, right? And so yeah. um, my only real thinking around censorship had been things like, um, uh, you know, broadcasting and the, like, the Super Bowl event a couple years prior to that. Um, and so, yeah, I get to Morocco, experience this, get really into the blogging community there and started writing about censorship. Now, there it was government censorship, of course. Mm -hmm. But a few years later, I moved back to the U.S. and I'm working at the Berkman Klein Center, again, on government censorship. And somebody from my Morocco days writes to me and says, hey, um, I've, I've, I'm being censored by Facebook. And I'm like, what, what do you mean censored by Facebook? Um, and the story was basically that, you know, and I was aware at this point, let me just say from my job um, of governments going to tech companies to, to demand that they take things down and also of governments blocking um, Facebook and YouTube and whatnot that had been going on since like 2006, 2007. So this was 2010. And this young man comes to me and says that he's being censored by Facebook. And so I looked into it and what the page was, was um, a page that he'd created calling for the separation of religion and education, which is, mm. you know, pretty controversial. It was at the time kind of still is there. And the page kept being taken down. And so the question that I could ask at that point from my experiences was, is this the government or is this a company making this decision? Right. Um, the truth is we never found out for sure whether the government oh. was involved. There were no transparency reports back then. Um, 
I don't know. But the, the fact is that that, you know, that kind of like made me super curious. I went down a deep rabbit hole and found all sorts of examples all over the internet of people accusing these companies of censoring them, which led me to write this paper. And thanks to like my, my boss at the time, Rob Ferris at the Berkman Center, um, they supported me, as, me, a project manager in um, writing this paper that ended up kind of kind of making a, a mark, um, you know, kind of surprisingly to me. It was called uh, Policing Content in the Quasi-Public Sphere, and it was the first thing I really wrote about this. And that um, was 2010, and like less than six months later, the Arab uprisings happened, and I was just in this situation to, to you know, comment on this stuff when, you know, the, the Egyptian government blocked Facebook, etc., um, and I guess ever since then, I've been looking at this and I think, you know, growing up in the U.S. and then living in a, a pretty authoritarian country um, is quite a, I don't know if we swear on this, but a mind. Um, <laughs> you can, you can. Okay, cool. Fine. It's quite a mind fuck then. Um, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and so, yeah, it really kind of got my head spinning and then realizing that these companies were under U.S. law, that, that the First Amendment gives companies the right to censor other people is a really weird perspective for a lot of folks um, yeah. outside the U.S. That's really hard to understand that it's I mean, even in the U.S. A lot of people think yeah. it's Section 230, <laughs> right? Um, right? So, yeah, I guess that's really what came down to it. And, and then, you know, over the next few years, um, all sorts of things happened in the world that caused these companies to become even more reactive or reactionary, um, you know, going after terrorism, going at changing their rules, banning more sexual content, et cetera. Um, and so I've just been, you know, hyper-focused on it ever since. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and you know, I think, um, you know, one of the interesting things that I found in the book is that, you know, as you sort of trace this journey, you know, you and, and you know, you've been highly critical of the companies, you know, in, in many situations and, and their practices. Um, but you note, you know, that you've sort of shifted your position a little bit, that, that your position, at least, you know, initially was similar to mine. I mean, I, I went through the same sort of <laughs> process where it's like, well, you know, ah, oh, man, I don't think these companies should be doing any of this, right? Like, why should the companies be deciding what you can say? Um, but then sort of recognizing that that's not a realistic uh, <laughs> outcome either. <laughs> and it's sort of, you know, I, I think, you know, sooner or later, you know, anyone who's really grappling with these issues sort of has to go through that thought process. And it leaves, it left me in an uncomfortable place and I'm still somewhat uncomfortable with it. Um, but I, I sort of got the feeling that you went through that journey as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, and when I first started learning about this stuff, it was on instinct. I'd been, I'd been really, right. you know, I'd been working on a, a large-scale research project called the OpenNet Initiative, which was looking at how governments were were filtering uh, websites. And so mm -hmm. I was, you know, I, I knew about censorship and I knew about it from a global perspective. And so my instinct when I saw Facebook doing this was that shouldn't be allowed. And I started looking at like Marsh versus Alabama and all of these, you right. know, like this, but it can't be like this. This is like the, t the town square. <laughs> um, and right. it turns out it's not. And then, of course, you know, moving to EFF, learned more about 230 and was like, ah. <laughs> and it, it took me years for it to really sink in because, you know, I, I think like a lot of us who come from activism operate on instinct um, and like right. the, the world shouldn't be this way but then you know you kind of come around to going okay the world is this way and then also at the same time that i'm realizing that the world is this way you're seeing gamergate you're seeing the rise of the islamic state you're seeing the rise right. of right-wing populism and all of that really changed the way that i looked at what these companies should be doing and i'm still very much um, a free speech advocate but i don't i don't come from an absolutist perspective and i don't think it's reasonable to at this point yeah, yeah, no, that's what, and and um, you know, I, I I think anyone who reads your book will see very clearly that you have a very strong free speech 
you know, belief as do I, and, 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 you know, I spend a lot of time working about, you know, working on this issue and thinking about this issue and trying to figure out what is the best way to get more, you know, support for freedom of expression, but it becomes really tricky and it's not, it, it is not an easy question. And I think, you know, the, the different trade-offs that, that you lay out in the book and, you know, it's, it's funny, it, it sort of reminded me and, and, and made me think back through my own sort of, you know, thinking evolution on this topic, <laughs> um, you know, and like, you know, the, 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 the biggest example is like, you know, when we started Tector, we, we let anyone comment on the site, no matter what. Um, and the first time I suddenly had to deal with this was we had a, a troll uh, and it was someone who, you know, this is fairly early days. And I remember very clearly we'd had some sort of article and I, I, I remember how this came about, but I don't remember specifically which article, but we had an article that was talking about Craigslist and something about Craigslist. And the troll came on the site and, and commented um, something to the effect of like, you know, cause we were talking about, I think we were talking about something about how amazing it was that Craigslist, Craigslist had been so successful and it was still just a team of like 10 people at the time. Um, and the troll wrote, well, you know, well then that means that like Craigslist will, collapse after I like shoot each of the employees or something, something to that effect that I was just like, Oh my God, that's not good. And I don't like that on my site and I'm uncomfortable with that. And, and it is my site and I can delete it, but I also want people to feel free to talk on the site. And so what do I do about it? And I, I just, I had to sit with it for a while. And like, I remember I actually had a had lunch with a friend that day and I was just like, this is really bugging me. <laughs> and I don't, I, this is challenging my beliefs on this. Um, and, and, you know, my friend who is not that deep into free speech stuff was like, well, you know, you could just delete it. <laughs> and I was like, I know, but I, I don't, I, I feel like, you know, that gives me too much power. And he and so he was the one who was like, "Well, why don't you just let the community vote on it?" And this was before like there was that was like a common thing. This is you know pre Reddit. Oh, so and, funny. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." And eventually, we did develop we developed this sort of comment rating system that really sort of puts a lot you know gives some of the power to the community itself. But you know, it was it was a real struggle <laughs> to actually have to deal with it. You know, for real. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think going through those experiences, like it makes you realize the other side of things, right? Like I yeah. remember, um, I don't know if I, I'd be curious to know if these things happen around the same time, but there was a, a case in Thailand that EFF was pretty closely connected to um, that around intermediary liability. And I think you probably know about this, but um, the, the situation was that a person who ran a website was being um, held liable for content or for comments that people had left on her, on her website. And, you know, this whole trial happens and that's kind of what made me go, oh, right. Like I, the, the same, the same stuff that's protecting these big companies is also protecting these, these little people like the right. rest of us. And that's really, you know, that's why section 230 is so important. And that's why we want these principles to exist throughout the rest of the world. I think the problem is like, we didn't imagine these companies to go to the scale that they are. We didn't imagine right. that they would control everyone's speech. Um, and right. it's over the years, you know, I, I gave so many talks where when I, and I think you and I, I think we paralleled on a lot of this stuff. Like we went through a lot of this thinking at the same time <laughs> as each other.
each other because I've read sure. your work for many years as well, and it definitely has influenced mine. Um, but I remember this period of time around like 2014, let's say 15, where I would be giving a talk and saying like, you know, I don't think that you know, these companies, like they've gone too far, blah, blah, blah. And people would be like, they're private companies. They can do what they want. It's so funny to watch the tide turn a few years later, like the same right. people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is right. You know, it's interesting because a, a lot of it is, you know, and, and I, I try to spend time trying to zero in on what is the actual problem that it is that you're trying to solve. Right. Mm. Because I think a lot of these issues get conflated and yes. you brought up like there are issues of like, bigness and control and, you know, potentially monopoly or antitrust um, and privacy and data and all of these things, but they, you know, they, they get mixed together and conflated and, and that's where the concern comes in, where it's like, you know, if you're trying to deal with a privacy harm or a competition harm and you think the answer to that is through, you know, blocking speech or something of that nature, you know, one, it's not going to work, right? Yeah. You're solving for the wrong thing. Um, but also it, it just suggests that like, you don't fully understand the problem. And, and, and that's understandable because, you know, as, as we just said, like, you know, everyone's instincts on these are probably wrong. Right? <laughs> it, it takes, it takes time to sort of think through and recognize all of these different issues and really how they, how they interact with one another. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that's a lot of what, you know, what I think you're really good at too, is, is like reminding people it's like, yeah, you know, this seems like a simple solution, but think through the actual trade-offs and the consequences of, of what you're saying here. Yeah. I mean, there's no easy answers. Right. And I think that like, we're all coming, I mean, I I know I've gotten in a lot of fights over the years with people who who have, (laughs) you know, who have strong feelings about like this stuff should be taken down. And I, I don't always think that they're wrong, but I, I feel like you know, and, and I, don't get me wrong, I've been limited in my perspective too, but I think a lot of people are coming from very specific perspectives. So like if yeah. you're if you're fighting back against harassment, it's very understandable why you would want the solution to be for companies to take down harassment. Right. Um, yep. If you're coming from a free speech perspective, it's understandable why you would see how that could have um, an overbroad or kind of collateral damage kind of impact. And so we, those couple of sides and all of the other sides have to get together and sit at the table and figure this out. And I like what some folks have, the way that um, some folks have framed it recently is like ultimately it does come down to process and that's mm. not an easy pill to swallow because you're dealing with process at both the regulatory level and also the self-regulation level and you know that's why I mean that's why I ultimately come back to with these companies that I think they are too big for the way that they design themselves and they need to kind of go back to the drawing table on some of their policy making um, right but yeah, I mean, none of this is easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's like, yeah, that's the point that I keep trying to make also is like, it's, you know, and, and I've heard people say it and, and, uh, I think, I think I heard it first from Dave Wilner, who you, you quote extensively in your book as well, um, where he was just like, people have to understand that there's just a, a series of bad choices in front of everyone. Right. There are no good choices. And it's just, you know, you have to pick which of the bad choices you're going to to accept, you know, and, and that's hard for some people to to, well, believe or to accept themselves. It's, it's just, you know, that there, there are no good answers. And, and every one of these answers has trade offs and every one of those decisions is going to have winners and losers, you know, and, and you know, on a related note, you know, um, that I think gets to this that I, I've been thinking a lot about lately. And we had we had a podcast about this um, about a month ago 
is a, a recognition that like so many of these things on, on the government side, when, when governments are stepping in and saying, you need to deal with this kind of content, um, they're really, it, it, it's it's really sort of showing how the government itself has failed to deal with some sort of societal problem, sometimes mental health, sometimes, you know, uh, criminal justice or, or, or other issues. Uh, and then saying, Hey, tech company, you're big, you solve it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you begin to think of, think about things and look at all of these issues through that perspective and you're like, Oh, look at this sort of big societal problem that, that, nobody has solved for years and this government has failed and then they're suddenly demanding that the tech company wave a magic wand and solve it and you're like that's that's not great you know but but you're also on the flip side you're recognizing part of the reason why they're doing that is because they're saying oh these companies are so big that maybe they can do something about this problem that as a government we were unable to do and so there's there's all of these different competing interests and trade-offs uh, involved in all of this stuff yeah, I mean, I think it's almost like a recognition that the systems that we have globally aren't working. Like having all of these different right. national governments coming up with different laws around speech can't really work in an internet context, but turning to corporations is weird. And I just want to go back to, like, <laughs> like it really is like, oh yeah, no, we can't, we governments can't solve this. The right. UN is not going to do it. So how about a, a company that, you know, has a business model <laughs> of, of sucking up people's data? No. Um, right. But I want to go back to, because you mentioned Dave Wilner, and he's fantastic, and Charlotte, his wife, is fantastic, yep. and um, you know they both worked at Facebook in the early days, and you've also got all these other folks like Alex McGillivray and Alex Stamos. Yep. They're all named Alex um, for some reason. <laughs> Alex Fierst. Um, all of these folks who worked at these companies you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago who are now all kind of relatively on the same page with what they're saying. I mean, obviously there's nuance and they each worked in different areas. Uh, Nicole Wong's another one. Like all yep. of them are kind of saying, hey, these problems are hard. And I feel like they're, you know, I'm seeing them gently <laughs> push back on the people who are in their or in the positions that they were in back then now. But yeah. I, it, I, it worries me because I don't feel like the companies are even listening to their former employees. Um, and Facebook yeah. definitely isn't, right? Like you've got Twitter trying their best <laughs> right now and they're yeah. not like the wealthiest company, but Facebook, it just drives me absolutely nuts to watch them like reinvent the wheel every six months. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I've seen like Dave has been particularly frustrated at, his, at Facebook where he worked and he, you know, created their content policies and he's been screaming at them <laughs> for the longest time. Yeah, um, yeah, I but... even appreciated like Charlotte recently saying, you know, we got, we got the real names policy wrong like that was that was nice yeah. to hear like okay cool yeah. like it's, it's great that we're at this point now listen <laughs> yeah yeah well it's you know and it's it's interesting we actually had uh, alex fierce the uh, one of the alexes w was on the podcast <laughs> last week talking about this stuff too so uh for people who haven't heard that uh th that conversation certainly ties into this one as well um yeah i mean it's 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 really interesting um, you know, and there are like, there are sort of new organizations around that are sort of trying to help. And that includes like, you know, Charlotte is now running the Trust and Safety uh, Professional Association and the Trust and Safety Foundation. And, um, and last week, you know, we had Alex Fierce talking about the new thing that, that he helped put together, which is the what is it? The Digital Trust and Safety Partnership or something like we're gonna that? Get, we're going to get we're going to have a lot of new acronyms in the next couple of yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to see like attempts to, in some sense, professionalize this. Um, and, 
you know, with, you know, and it's being done by very thoughtful people. So they sort of recognize the pitfalls and, and they're not saying like there is one right way to do this. And they're all, you know, screaming from the mountaintops, like there's a lot of nuance here and there are a lot of different choices that people can make. And we're not saying anyone is right, but, but also recognizing that like having these companies completely reinvent the wheel themselves every single time and make the same mistakes. And we just see it over and over again. Um, you know, there was just this story. I don't know if I, I, I haven't even looked that deeply at it. I really only uh, looked at the surface part of it where like, you know, Slack was letting people communicate across oh companies goodness. yeah, and then that... <laughs> immediately shut it down because they're like, oh yeah, we didn't realize people might harass other people with it. That, that was when I realized that we're now on a two-hour news cycle, not a twenty-four-hour right. news cycle. Um, that, yeah, that was so fast. They, yeah, you could send, you could look up anybody in any company and send a message to them. And I was like, man, if that had been around when when I was writing this book, like it would have been so much easier to just like hit up all the Facebook employees that way. Um, yeah. But <laughs> but yeah, no, it's terrible for for, for privacy and harassment issues completely. <laughs> yeah, but it you know, but the thing that amazes me is that you know that there's there are still companies and and even you know one that is as large as Slack and they're now owned by Salesforce I think right so like that they wouldn't have thought through like you know any any product of this nature for a company of a decent size I mean I would argue even smaller companies should at least be thinking through like these issues and that's not saying like you have to have a particular answer to it but the fact that 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 like Slack was like, oh yeah, we didn't even think about that. And, I, and I've seen that from a few different companies these days where they're like, oh yeah, we haven't even thought about how our, how our system could be abused. And, and that's not to say that they need to, you know, have a really heavy handed system in place, but you know, there, there are so many examples out there that they should be able to at least pay some attention and think through these issues and have an answer for it. Yeah, it, it almost feels to me like the corporate structure doesn't quite allow for that. And I mean, I've never worked for a company, I have to say. So I'm probably, you know, <laughs> even though I wrote this book, I, I definitely don't have the uh, the firsthand experience. But it is really strange to watch. I mean, especially as company is big and, and now kind of getting older as Facebook, um, to watch the way, like, the manner in which these mistakes get made. And I mean, Slack, yeah. you know, I don't know as much about the company. Um, but it is really interesting because if you look across them right now, the bigger ones especially, uh, or the, the more well-known ones, let's say, if you compare like Facebook, Reddit, and Twitter, it's so interesting to to try to suss out how they're making their decisions and why. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I mean, it really does, from my perspective, come down to who they talk to and like the kind of the kind of groups they reach out to, who they read. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't have insight into all of that, but there are companies that, like Reddit, for example, they they've done an incredible job um, catching yeah. up on a lot of this policy stuff, and they do talk to to EFF. Um, they they worked with us pretty closely on getting uh, some of the stuff right around transparency and notice and appeals. Um, you know, Twitter tries really hard too, but then you've got companies that get as big as Facebook. And I assume that Slack, if it's under Salesforce, is, is probably like that too. Um, it feels like the bigger they get, the more the people making the decisions become removed from society. I, <laughs> yes. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but Facebook to me almost feels like the Soviet Union in the 80s. Is that a fair comparison? <laughs> I, I had not thought of that before, but that's that's an interesting one. And, I rewatched The Americans recently. I, I can't help it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it. you know, there's always, you always have a sense, right? Like, you know, a company has its own natural gravity, right? Yeah. And the larger a company gets, the stronger that gravity gets as well. And, and, and that creates, you know, 
just sort of you know procedural roadblocks <laughs> um, in terms of doing anything or like making big changes. But yeah, I mean, you, I mean, it's funny because like you can look at a company like Facebook and and you can see like there's a logic behind all of the decisions that they made, right? And and so like I. I I reject the idea that, and, and you can disagree with me on this. I reject the idea that like there's there's like a, a an inherent evilness in in Facebook or their their management. I may disagree vehemently with many of their decisions, but I can see the logic. I think there there are a lot of assumptions that they're making that are incorrect, um, and I think it's uh, silly for them to be making those incorrect assumptions. And I think that they should have access to enough information and resources not to make those assumptions, and they don't, and that bugs me. Um, but there, there is a, a sort of internal logic behind the decisions that they make, you know, whether good or bad. Um, and, you know, the, 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 I guess the thing that I've been trying to figure out now is like, yeah, is there a way to change that, that gravity, right? Um, and yeah. is there a, a way to get them to think differently about it, about, you know, the, their decision-making process? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. Even the people at the very top of the company who, I, who I'm the most critical of, um, I don't think that they're evil. I think that they're deeply, deeply removed from ordinary society. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's yes. different from being evil. It, it's just, it's being, you know, elite and from very, you know, one right. background. And so it's this room full of people. But um, no, I mean, I think the rest of the company, I mean, I, I have consulted on certain things. I just recently, you know, worked with them on, um, I don't know how much I can talk about it, but like I gave input to something that they were working on regarding um, some specific tools around harassment. And that's the kind of thing where you've got some really thoughtful people, um, folks who are deeply, you know, part of society um, right. who are thinking through this stuff. And the problems are sometimes that they're not, the teams are not always talking to each other. Some of the problems are that some of this stuff gets vetoed higher up. And then, you know, there's one really specific problem, which is that I feel that they've hired um, from government and law enforcement in a way that brings those ideologies yeah. into the policymaking process. And I think that that's really troublesome. I understand why it started, but then I feel like it became this train that, that just never stopped. Um, and now it's at this <laughs> point where they're kind of playing all sides politically in a way that's just really damaging to ordinary people. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think I think it's interesting to see. And again, this is entirely from the outside, so we are we are yeah. purely speculating. But purely. It, it's yeah. It, I mean, it's it certainly looks like you know they've they've very much focused on the political game, um, and and that's that's driven a whole bunch of their decisions. And I think that's the root cause of of many of their problems. Um, and it's you know from my standpoint, it's like that's such a no win position. Like. You know, stake out a position, argue it on the merits. Don't don't make your decisions based on well. You know, politicians will get mad at us if we do it this way. Um, yeah, it's it's really weird. Like, why do politicians? Why would you come to the conclusion? I mean, other than the fact that you're Nick Clegg, but like, why would you come to the conclusion <laughs> that politicians' speech is more important uh, than ordinary folks' speech? And so we're going to create yeah. exceptions for politicians to say hateful things, but you can't. Like, that's really weird to me because. You know, from my perspective, a politician's speech has far more potential for harm than mine or yours. I mean, mind you, I think right. there's valid arguments to be made for taking down hate speech in any case. But nevertheless, like if you're going to do it, you have to treat all people equally. If anything, give more scrutiny to the elected officials. 
Right, but but again, like it, you know, like, getting to the point of like everything has trade-offs, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like you know, because I had just gone through this, and I know Twitter is now reviewing their policy on this, but I had gone gone through their policy on on uh, uh, you know elected officials and and when they violate the rules, and they had this policy where sometimes they felt that even if a, t- a tweet violated the rules, um, they thought it was newsworthy enough that it should be left up that you know, that people should see what this particular elected official is saying, because that's important to know. Like, you know, it's, it's one of these things like, is it better to know that this politician is screaming out hateful things or is it better for them to just, you know, say them secretly or whatever? Um, yeah. And I mean, I agree that that's a really important thing to think about. And yet I wish that they would give like anywhere near as much thought to, for example, the documentation of war crimes that's happening yeah. um, on these platforms, like <laughs> yes. places like Syria, like that. We're literally seeing the erasure of history, yeah. uh, the erasure of the documentation of history. And they're like, oh, but Trump's tweets like, oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's like, I mean, that's great, too. And like that, that is like one of the, the first examples that I, I used on this, like going back to 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 Joe Lieberman. I don't know if you remember all this. Like, oh, where, yeah. Where, 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 <laughs> where, you know, in like 2008, I think it was, he, yep. he you know, sent this angry letter to, to YouTube and said, like, how dare you uh, allow terrorists to use your platform? You must delete all this content. And YouTube was like, okay. And then they took down this, this uh, you know, an organization that was documenting war crimes and literally deleting evidence of war crimes. And you're like... You know, and and but you know, and that's part of the the part that's that's really tricky about this because that could be the same content, right? You know, the content that some terrorists use to to promote themselves could also be documentation of war crimes. Yeah, and, it's, and, it's it's so weird, right? Like the yeah. <laughs> the so overlap. Like, yeah. So so and and the unwillingness of of people and certainly politicians, but also many in the media, to 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 recognize those things and, and sort of the nuance in this, um, you know, makes it really tricky, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because it, that, that story, there was one missing piece there, which was that originally Eric Schmidt had defended Al-Qaeda's right to post content. Right. And then <laughs> and then later on, um, with the rise of the Islamic State, they changed their minds. And, you know, there was a lot of pressure from even the State Department at that time. People don't, yeah. like, we don't hear a lot about that, but the U.S. definitely has, in several occasions, and I talk about this in the book, but, like, has put pressure on companies to remove things abroad, which is really interesting. It's like, oh, the government is placing pressure, but yeah. it's not in the U.S., so does the First Amendment apply? I don't know. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, the, the thing with um, war crimes documentation I mean, Syrian archive, uh, now mnemonic is the, the overarching organization. They've done incredible work on that. I mean, honestly, they're who made me aware of it. And it made me want to go you know, dig back into that history and figure it out. And I think that was a lot of what the book was, was like reading other people's stuff and then going, OK, how did we get here? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's. Um... You know, it, it's it's such an interesting and thorny problem, right? And um, you know, and I think that's that's it's one of the reasons why I do I, I did really enjoy the book. It's like it is, you know, it is another perspective as you know, sort of exploring this and going through a lot of the history. Um, and 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 you know, in some ways, it's it is such a unique problem, right? You know, questions of you know, you can find earlier examples, but of you know but it's more like editorial discretion type questions or like, you know, questions of like what books should a library have uh, or a bookstore have rather than 
here's a platform that anyone can use to put up any content. And the nature of the questions that differ from one to the other is it's, you know, it's an order of magnitude or more uh, in terms of the types of questions that, that come up when, when you make that shift. Um, and so it's, it's kind of an incredible time. And, and I, you know, I kind of wonder, like, is there a point at which this gets figured out and, and there sort of becomes this sort of acceptable standard for dealing with this kind of stuff? Or is it something that people will always struggle with forever going forward? I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I mean, well, since we were talking about the evolution, I realized, you know, like I said, I think you and I have been thinking about a lot of this in parallel. And, I think, you know, we both came to the conclusion that content moderation was necessary. And then I watched us kind of both come to the conclusion that it was necessary, <laughs> but also impossible. Um, right. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I, I think we got to go a little easy on ourselves, especially in the past year, um, although I'm still harsh on the companies, but... Um, and realizing that like, okay, we've only recently come to both of those conclusions one right after another. And I, I think a lot of people are, are with us on that. We've got a big cohort um, when it comes to right. these, these answers. And so, okay, now that we've recognized those two things, it's necessary and impossible at this scale. <laughs> I think that this is a really, like post pandemic is the perfect time for these companies to do a full audit of their systems and, yeah. and scale back. Because, okay, in 2021, is it reasonable to delineate um, a binary between men and women and only block, quote, quote, women's breasts, uh, nipples? Um, is it reasonable to say, okay, all terrorism must be eradicated from the internet, which is what's being pushed by, like, the Christchurch call, um, you know, it's to eliminate terrorist content. What does it mean to eliminate terrorist content? Are we going to move right. from buzzwords to actually talking about, you know, these deeper issues? And so my hope is that that's the next phase. I'm a little skeptical because of the, the current debate in the U.S. And, and like all of these different proposals around 230. It feels like people are grasping at straws. And yet, you know, it's, it's also these companies that are sort of driving that grasping at straws. Um, yeah. And so I think it is at this point, it is on the companies to, to do that audit. And that's what I want to see happen next. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where this is a perfect system. But if we can accept, you know, a, a lower error rate, there is always going to be an error rate. But if we can accept that, and then also make sure that there are systems of due process or remedy in place, I think that we can get to a reasonable point, we just have to, to really dig into that process. Yeah, no, I think I think that that makes sense um it'll be interesting to see how these things evolve uh continue to evolve because you know yeah we shouldn't we shouldn't necessarily assume that our our current views are static either <laughs> um, no and you yeah. know i also haven't seen i gotta say like we saw a couple of years ago when facebook hired up a bunch of uh, privacy activists but we yep. haven't seen the companies do that recruiting from uh from academia and from civil society into the ranks of their policymakers. And I, I hope that that's yeah. the next step too. Not that I'm asking for a job, I'm not, but um, <laughs> but I know a lot of people who would be really, really great at that work. And so I hope yeah. that the companies recognize that it's time for these folks who are really far apart from society to be the ones in this position. I mean, at the very least, they have to work toward a better model of inclusion. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, you know, it is interesting, right? Because they did, they did hire or, or bring in some of those people for the sake of setting up the oversight board, yes. but not not for their internal <laughs> content moderation questions. No, which that's is true. Interesting. 
That's true. I mean, Facebook, so the company picked the oversight board members, but they did staff the oversight board from Article 19, I think it was. And then there have been other folks that have joined yeah. it. And I'm actually, you know, I'm, I know we're both skeptical of the oversight board and its, its yeah. model, but at the same time, I've been really, really impressed to see, um, you know, some of the ways that they've brought in uh, thoughts from outside, the ways that the oversight board members are consulting and showing up on panels and talking publicly about their work. Yep. And so I am actually, you know, I, I still think the, mar the model in the charter is a bit wrong, but I think that the people are really doing um, a good job of broadening that. And it's, it's, yeah. it's exciting to see. Yeah. And I, you know, and I've always said it's an interesting experiment. I'm, I'm skeptical how successful it will be, but like, yeah. I am also impressed, you know, again, at this point, and I've said this a few times, like we're talking a very small sample size, so we'll see, you know, how it evolves itself. But, um, you know, I think the people involved take this, take the whole thing very seriously. And there is a point at which, you know, and, you know, even with the, the deficiencies in the charter, which I agree with, um, you know, there is a point where it's like, if everybody acts as if it's real <laughs> and has yeah. power, then it has power. <laughs> you know, that's, that's sort of the nature of these things. And so, you know, it has a real possibility of creating real change. Um, and if it can do that, like, that's, that's cool. Uh, and, and I would be impressed by that. I'm, I'm not convinced it will, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of rooting for it. Yeah, me too. You know what I mean? Like Nick, Nick Suzor is one of the people on it. He wrote mm -hmm. a book that really influenced mine called Lawless. And the fact that somebody who yeah. called these companies just straight up lawless is on the oversight board is, it gives me hope. Um, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully we'll see more experiments like that happen. I mean, that's, that's the thing is like, I, I know we've been under, or we, civil society, journalism, but also the companies themselves and the, the, the real people who work in the real departments at these companies, not the names that we know. Um, yeah. We've been under a lot of weird, I mean, the past year has been really weird, but also a lot of pressure from governments, pressure from the public. Um, and I think that if there's, you know, if there's space for these companies to get more creative about this stuff, then I think we will see a lot more interesting solutions. Um, we just got to like ease up on that pressure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and and um I'm I'm slightly biased for for a variety of reasons, but I'm I I am really curious to see what happens with with Twitter and and Blue Sky and the, their whole effort to like try and build a, a protocol and allow for different algorithms to to that for people to sort of select their own algorithms. Yes. Um, and and you know I who knows but like that's that's a different approach and and like yes again like there's bias here because I suggested it <laughs> you know awesome, not thinking though. that not not thinking that anyone would ever pay attention to it <laughs> uh, but um, but it's you know it's been interesting just to see also as like different people are beginning to think through that idea and you know that there are these different approaches that don't necessarily involve like big company must decide everything. Um, and I think that's, that's an encouraging direction if it can actually get some traction, but who knows if it will. No, I completely agree. And I think it's such a cool idea. And it's also just been really, I mean, we've talked about Facebook a lot on this, but it's been really interesting to see Twitter evolve and to even just see yeah. Jack Dorsey's mind evolve for the past couple yes. of years. Like I've been watching like a hawk going like, what are you going to do <laughs> next, buddy? What are you going to do next? Because he is, he's, he's in a position of extraordinary privilege. Um, yeah. and he's starting to use it in a very different way. And I'm like, okay, set, set that example, go for it. Like I, I, you know, still very critical of a lot of the decisions that they make as a company yep. and that he makes, you know, but at the same time, it's really refreshing um, to see yeah. that. 
Yeah, and 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 honestly, like you know, some of this drives home the the point, which is you know, you talk about like the way that Reddit has handled these things and the way that Twitter has handled these things, and and um, and compare it to to Facebook and you know, and like other companies too have been doing interesting. Like Discord has been doing some interesting things, you know, and so. But part of the the nice thing is that these companies can all experiment with different ways of doing things, and and you know continuing to iterate and hopefully finding better and better solutions. Um, and 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 I should note like better and better solutions that fit their what they're trying to do and what community they're trying to solve because they're not all trying to serve the same communities, and and that is is nice you know it, though. You know, we also see all the mistakes that they make. Some of them very avoidable, <laughs> but you know, it's it's interesting to see the evolution from just that sort of experimentation. Yeah, exactly. I think that the experimenting and and, and creativity around policy making is is yeah, that's got to be what happens next, right? It's so nice to see. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, um, as, as I said, like the whole book is 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 excellent. It's it really you know even though I I knew a bunch of these things and I know a bunch of the people that you've quoted and I've spoken to them as well like I still I learned a lot uh, it it challenged me in in the appropriate points and 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 really got me thinking on on all this stuff uh, and so for for people listening you know if you you know think you have ideas about content moderation and free speech online, I highly recommend that you read Silicon Values. It's a really, it's, it's well-written, it's very engaging, and, it's, uh, and, and it'll, it'll make you think. Uh, and so, Jillian, thank you so much for, for writing the book uh, and for, for putting all this down on, on paper and, and then having this conversation. It's fun. I, I feel like I, I learned a lot just from this conversation as well. Yeah, we should do this more often. I, I thank you so much for having me on. This is great. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week.